Welcome to the Finding Sustainability Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today's guest is Elena Finkbeiner. Elena is the Fisheries and Science Program Manager at Conservation International's Center for Oceans. She holds a master's degree from Duke University's Nicholas School for the Environment and a PhD from Stanford University. Elena is interested in understanding and improving adaptive capacity and equality within and across fishing communities and integrating a human rights-based approach to fisheries governance. She has over a decade of experience working in small-scale fisheries along the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. In the podcast, we discuss Elena's experience in working for a large international conservation NGO, the benefits and potential downsides of doing a PhD, her perspectives on interdisciplinarity, the role of applied research, and her experience doing behavioral economic field experiments with fishers in Mexico. So please welcome Elena Finkbeiner. Just to start things off, Elena, it'd be great to hear about kind of how you got to where you are. One way I like to put this question is, there's a lot of superhero movies out now and superheroes always have like these origin stories about being bit by a spider or something like how they became who they are. Like, do you think about it that way at all? Like if someone asked you what your origin story is, like, what would you say? Yeah. I like, I like, I like how you put it that way. Basically my entire life, I wanted to become a scientist. I actually wanted to become um, a neurosurgeon since I was really, really little. And so from a young age, I would do things like, um, memorize the bones and muscles in the human body, put together models of human body, um, take summer school classes so I could learn chemistry and dissect animals. So I, I always had this deep love for science, and I thought medicine would be my match because I wanted to help humans and do science at the same time. Um, and then I got to college, and I realized maybe the hospital isn't the best natural habitat for me. And I really wanted to be outside and make my career about being outside and in nature. Um, so then I really got into sort of botany, ecology, marine biology, and I was embracing ideas like deep ecology and the intrinsic value of nature. And the role of humans kind of dropped off a little bit for me. Um, and then after, so I did my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz, and I majored in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, and then after that, I started working in sea turtle research and conservation. And that sort of led me to fisheries. Um, and so I was I had this job where I was um, I was teaching high school students and I was also leading a research program with local fishers in Mexico. And so I was spending hours on boats with local fishers. We were testing, different gear configurations to try and reduce the accidental capture of sea turtle and fishing nets um, and while maintaining their target catch. So I was spending hours and hours offshore with uh, local fishers in Mexico one summer and I started just you know having these long conversations with them and listening to their story and started realizing that they cared so much about the ocean and sustainability and being stewards of their environment. Um, but they had these immense obstacles and struggles to overcome in order to, to be conservationists and stewards. And that was because of, you know, these perverse incentives that were set up by misguided government policies, you know, or mar global markets and other sorts of, of social obstacles. So that was sort of the pivotal point in my life where um, I realized that I was no longer interested in studying the a symptom of the problem. And in that case, it was the symptom was mm. sea, turtle, sea turtle bycatch, right? Um, and I realized that there are so many symptoms, both social and ecological, and that I wanted to study the underlying problem 
that was resulting in these symptoms. And that was, it's really, really hard to govern fisheries. And it's not just a problem um, of biology. It's a problem with understanding human behaviors and motives and the incentive structure in which they're working in. So that was, <clears throat> that was sort of my aha moment. And so from there, when I did, I did my master's at Duke and my PhD at Stanford, and I um, tried to take as many social science courses as possible. So like public policy, political ecology, economics, and so on. And that's when I came to um, this concept of social ecological systems. Um, and I really embraced that because I thought any environmental problem we're going to solve we have to look at the interactions, the linkages, the feedbacks between humans and the environment and think of humans as the solution and not just the problem. And um, yeah, so it's sort of, it's full circle because um, in the end, now I'm, now I'm still doing work um, with and for humans, but I'm also using science. Hmm. So, would you do you engage with the ideas of um, I mean, it sounds like you obviously think about the importance of interdisciplinarity. Um, there's also you know terms you hear multidisciplinarity, uh, transdisciplinarity, which, which I've been hearing a lot about in like the last year, which is something we can talk about maybe in relation to your work at CI as well. The idea of academics working with local partners, et cetera, to kind of co-produce knowledge. Are those terms important for you in understanding your own path and, and getting towards your current work? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that, you know, um, this generation of, of scientists, including myself and, and, and you as well, I think that this idea of being an interdisciplinary scientist um, was never really supported before. But mm -hmm. more and more people like us are identifying as that, you know, we have these more generalist um, educations where we study both ecology and social sciences to ask applied interdisciplinary um, real-world problems, or sorry, um, questions, and, and try and solve real-world problems. And so um, I kind of struggled with that for a while because, you know, the incentives in academia are such that you have to be really deeply rooted with, within one discipline. Yeah. Um, in order to find a job in a department and then to get tenure. Um, but this new generation of scientists, I think it's, it's hard to, to sort of uh, fit in a single compartment or category. Um, and I, I, I can't really say other than I do sustainability science, I can't really say that I am, you know, an ecologist or a social scientist. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, I do. I think um, interdisciplinary science is an emerging phenomenon. And I think that um, I still believe in doing science for science sake, but I think that if we are going to really apply science to real world problems, that it's going to take either interdisciplinary teams or individuals who are, who are interdisciplinary. Um, yeah. So you mentioned the, the concept sustainability science. Is that a label you apply to yourself? Do you think that those kind of labels are important or, or is that less meaningful for you? Um, I think, I think it's, I mean, I don't really like labels, but I guess it is important to have a label. And, and I would say that sustainable, sustainability science is probably the best way of describing what I do because I grab from multiple disciplines, methodologies, and literatures and apply them to sustainability problems. 
Yeah, I mean the label issue is is tricky. I mean it's 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 one of these double-edged swords, right? That's we're we're aware, you know, in the current discourse, the challenges that labels pose because they oversimplify, they put people in boxes, et cetera, and they underrepresent the dynamism in a group or in an individual. At the same time, right, I'll be in, in academic settings and someone will say, well, as an anthropologist, I something something, or as a geographer, I something something. Right. And there's just a, a lot of cachet and power in that social identification. Yeah. And it just seems like it's really hard to get away. And I know that a lot of the, the folks that graduated with me from Indiana, like a lot of us have struggled with like, what is our our label, some of us call ourselves social ecologists, you know, I now say environmental social scientist. Um, right. Stefan, I don't know, is there a, Stefan, do you have a, a favorite term of the day? Um, well, I would also say environmental social science at the moment, but it's also something that I struggled with. I mean, still today thinking about, you know, in various projects that I work on, I work on, you could call me a different thing, or you were using a different skill set that you've learned or a different theory, which might not all fit under the same umbrella. So yeah, it's difficult. I do call myself a, a fisheries social scientist sometimes, especially when I'm in a crowd of fisheries people. Sure. Um, yeah, but it's it's difficult. I think that the academic institutions are slowly shifting um, to support <laughs> this kind of science and this kind of identity, but it's for sure shifting a lot slower than than individuals who are emerging. Yeah, and you mentioned that you perceive some of that shift to be kind of intergenerational, which I think is frequently how change happens. It's not within a generation, but across generations. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you see, I mean, what do you think are the challenges to that interdisciplinarity? I mean, is it is it, can you think of it as a standard collective action problem among scientists that we're trying to produce these public goods and each of us kind of, kind of has our own incentives or is a different framing to that? Like, how do we, and I guess relatedly, how do you, you know, one of the hardest questions I think we could ask or think about is like, how do we address that challenge? How do we get more interdisciplinary? How do we stop being sometimes as mutually dismissive of each other as we can be across the social ecological sciences, sometimes also within the social sciences as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really difficult. I mean, I, so there's, there's many incentives within academia to sort of, you know, work with your head down and, and a more individual style and, you know, produce your own good work and, and prove yeah. yourself to your peers. But there's a lot of merit in um, being in a more collaborative space um, and getting past those collective action problems. And especially if you're, if you're really working on these issues that will take a lot of different knowledge sets and expertise and capacities from different individuals in different settings, um, and also from, you know, different uh, geographies around the world. So I really, I really believe strongly in collaborative research. And actually, that's something that I'm doing more and more now that I'm working in NGOs, um, in the NGO space, and have left academia. Um, So yeah, I, I think, I think, uh, these types of applied conservation and sustainability problems really require more collaboration among peers. Yeah. So that, I mean, fairly naturally brings us to, you know, one of the major topics that we want to get to is, which is what you're doing now at Conservation International. So could you talk to us a bit about, you know, how you got there and, and your work there and, and how you've experienced it so far? Sure. First of all, <laughs> I never thought I'd be working for a big NGO, <laughs> um, but but here I am, and I actually really really like it. Um, 
So prior to working at Conservation International, um, I did some postdocs at, at Stanford University, and I was very used to working in the academic setting. Uh, and so the shift was very sort of abrupt and at times difficult for me to learn how to transition to, to this new style of working and learning. Um, like I said previously, it's much more collaborative, um, many more meetings than you'd probably like. Um, but, um, in the same way, I think it's, it's really important when, when you're working on, uh, sustainability problems to work across organizations, to work across academia and, uh, the practitioner space and to work with local stakeholders. So, um, so I, yeah, I really, I really like it. And the work I've been focusing on at CI is around social responsibility in fisheries so for decades, you know, we've been concerned about environmental sustainability in fisheries and um, sustaining the fish stocks, um, especially ones that uh, like salmon and tuna that are important for human consumption. Um, but uh, several years ago, there have been a number of uh, media exposés that have highlighted this, these horrible, egregious human rights abuses that are occurring in fisheries worldwide. Um, and so it sort of shifted uh, the dialogue in global fisheries management mm -hmm. and conservation from that of environmental sustainability to that of social responsibility. So what are we going to do about what's occurring in global fisheries? Um, both in terms of these labor abuses, you know, modern slavery and human trafficking that we're seeing in some industrial fleets, but also um, for small-scale fisheries in terms of um, food security issues, livelihood security issues, gender inequity, and um, access to resources for indigenous populations. So I've been really heavily involved um, since, since coming to CI in this practitioner space that's working on how do we get social, re social responsibility embedded um, within seafood value chains? How do we address these issues and improve them? Okay, wow. So there's a lot there for us to talk about. Um, well, just further clarification. So you're working within CI and what unit within CI are you kind of working with? Like how big is your group? And Because you mentioned it's more collaborative. And so um, who are you spending a lot of your time collaborating with within the organization? Yeah, so CI is a pretty big organization. Um, we're global in scope, uh, headquartered in DC. There's probably about a thousand employees, but we also have over 35 um, different country offices. Right. So we're dispersed all around the world. Um, so I work uh, for the Center for Oceans. Um, it's one of sort of the global strategy groups. Um, we're actually headquartered in Honolulu. And um, the folks that I work with in the Global Fisheries and Aquaculture Program um, beneath the Center for Oceans, there's only eight or nine of us. So we're pretty lean and mean. Um, but we focus on coastal community fisheries, sustainability, uh, uh, migratory species like tuna, um, responsible aquaculture. Um, and then we also do a lot of work in ocean finance and um, social responsibility, as I mentioned before. Okay, I mean that's a that's a large portfolio for eight or nine people. You all must be pretty busy. Yeah, we are pretty busy. <laughs> and then, so so those are the folks that I work with um, within CI. And then um, Conservation International is a part of the Conservation Alliance, 
for Seafood Solutions. And that is a consortium of over 40 different organizations that work in the seafood sustainability space and that are trying to work, um, forge partnerships with businesses to help support them in their endeavor to source sustainable seafood and now socially responsible seafood. So I interact a lot with the NGOs um, within the Conservation Alliance for Seafood Solutions. So that's like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Fair Trade, Marine Stewardship Council, et cetera. Okay. Um, and while I'm thinking of this question, because I know there's some listeners are going to want us to ask it and hear your answer, because I think there's a growing interest um, among graduates of kind of interdisciplinary environmental PhD programs to, to actually to follow the path that that you're taking. I mean, what would you say to, you know, a recent graduate who's kind of thinking about, well, you know, do I want to do academia? I, I, I do value transdisciplinarity, collaborative work. I mean, because I think these are things that a lot of us value. Um, sometimes you see them academia more or less. Sometimes you, you see them less. Um, you know, what... I don't, I don't want to use the A word advice, but, you know, what, what advice might you give someone who's, who's thinking about those things and thinking maybe I want to work for an organization like the one you're at? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think sort of what led me down this path and what sort of best prepared me for um, a career outside of academia is my decision to pursue a master's degree in a professional program. Um, so I went to the Nicholas School for the Environment at Duke University, and it's largely a pretty interdisciplinary degree. And, you know, instead of just doing a master's in science, you do uh, very applied work and you take a, a huge diversity of different of classes, sort of like a choose your own adventure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it really gets you in the mindset for thinking about problems first, sustainability problems first, and then gives you the skill set to grab from um, in terms of disciplines or methodologies that you might use to try and uh, resolve those those problems, those sustainability problems. So I think um, that master's degree really set me in motion to uh, be more of a sort of a holistic thinker, um, Thinking beyond science, thinking about policy, thinking about transdisciplinarity and working with a diversity of different stakeholders. And I think it set me up very nicely for, for working outside of academia. That said, I, you know, I still, I'm still not sure if I want to leave academia completely because, um, I just, I love the idea of, of, um, of teaching and learning, you know, the institution of learning. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, but, but right now in my career, this is what fits the best. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. So there was a foundation that you had before you actually started the PhD that then became important to you later on. sounds like. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It was interesting. I was just, I pop on the, the Chronicle of higher education page about once a week just to kind of see what's on there. And there was a article I think it was, it's more or less called, you know, your PhD won't prepare you for a, a non-academic career. I mean, it's one of these, um, yeah. it's not the most optimistic title. Um, yeah. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But, but I think it really is, it's an issue. And, and part of the article is saying, well, you know, yes, PhDs provide you 
with skills, but then if an employer is looking for someone who has skills and also like on the ground experience for the last eight years in this other sector that you also don't have, um, you might be really good for this job ultimately, but you're, you know, getting a PhD and whatever you got is, is not the strongest signal towards that direct path. Um, yeah, I've definitely heard the same that, you know, in many cases a PhD might in fact pigeonhole you instead of widen your options. Yeah. Do you view that as like a problem if we're taking a step back and thinking about PhDdom generally? I mean, because there's, there's a diversity of reasons why a lot of us get PhDs. Um, do they need to be, do we need to think about kind of broadening the options within PhD education? Is that something you've thought about? Yeah, I think so. But I also feel that, you know, you have more and more people need higher degrees these days to even get their foot in the door um, in terms of a career or a job opportunity. Right. So it's, it's really hard. It's a, it's a hard decision to make when you exit college and you're thinking about your next move, you know, do you get a graduate degree? Do you join the workforce so you can get more years of experience when it comes to applying to that next job? I think there's a lot of trade-offs um, and a lot of things to think about, but I do think that more and more people are getting PhDs just because they feel like they need to in order to be competitive in the job market. Right. Uh, so that's kind of a problem because a PhD is, is, I don't know. I see see it as a first of all love hate relationship. Um, and oh, I'd love to hear you unpack that more. <laughs> and a five year struggle. Five <laughs> <laughs> year struggle, yeah. Or, or longer for some. Um, that really sets you up nicely for one career, but maybe um, uh, you know constrains your options if you decide not to go into academia. So it's, it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, you could think about there are these increasing number of positions of professors of practice within academia. Mm. And I think it'd be nice um, if that was more well established as a career path as well. Because, I mean, I mean, honestly, particularly given the field that we're talking about, um, my own feeling has been that it'd be nice to have more professors of practice talking to students about their own experiences as opposed to kind of the theoretical ideas that they've cooked up. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, that's, that's sort of um, the ideal career path for me anyway, mm. is a uh, professor of practice. Um, because, and you know, you're able to still do your work in the practitioner space um um, engaging in real world problems and working with a diversity of stakeholders. And then you're also teaching at the same time, but you're um, engaging in a teaching style that's more practical for students. You know, it's, it gives them more opportunities later on um, in their own career paths. Um, if they get skill sets uh, that a practitioner would want and need. Yeah. Um, and that's not really common practice right now. So I, yeah, I really, I think the professor of practice um, paradigm is a really good one. And I'd like to see more universities pursue that. Yeah, I mean, particularly if we're talking about professional master's programs, right, where we're presumably we're kind of preparing students for, to be practitioners. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I would think the ideal case would be to have those dominated by folks that are in those fields, and or at least have been in those fields. I mean, so when you were at Duke, was there a was there a strong um, 
presence of, of this type of folks, like prof- uh, professors of practice telling you about kind of how they used to do things or how they still did things? Yeah, we did have, um, we did have professors of practice, um, which was really valuable um, to me. And Duke is pretty advanced in terms of, number one, their interdisciplinarity, and number two, their um, sort of practical uh, practical style of teaching, you know, real-world skill sets and, and so on. So um, I would say Duke is one of the leaders in this space, um, and I, I think that, uh, again, that master's program is pretty, pretty advanced in giving people um, a more sort of holistic and interdisciplinary education, setting them up for um, a number of different career paths. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's really pretty high praise. And I think that's what you'd want to hear about a master's program like that. Elena, I've been thinking about one thing that you said earlier on about this this focus that we tend to have on research, which looks at the symptoms versus the perhaps the underlying problems. And I kind of thought of this idea of, of a lot of environmental problem research that we have, the kind of you can use the iceberg metaphor where you you see a problem, just the tip sticking out of the water, but a lot of those underlying issues might be uh, social ones, right, which we don't see. How do we kind of move research beyond a framing of just looking at the symptoms and trying to understand better the, the underlying problems? Uh, a lot of those might be social. What has your experience been in at CI so far? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a really <laughs> hard question. I think of it in terms of, um, you know, this idea of proximal versus distal drivers. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something I think about a lot in fisheries because, um, and I actually, I wrote a paper on this a couple years ago, but people spend a lot of time blaming, placing blame on the proximal drivers. So take, for example, um, overfishing. So people might say that the problem with overfishing is that there's too many people fishing too few fish. So that's the proximal driver. And if that is your perception of what the problem is, what you would do is eliminate, you know, or reduce, greatly reduce the number of fishers. So you could do that via, um, you know, some sort of catch share, or you could put a, a marine protected area there to restrict access to fishers. There's a number of different policy um, policy fixes that you could put in place that would reduce the number of fishers. Um, but it's not looking at sort of the underlying drivers. Well, why are there too many fishers chasing too, too few fish? You know, is it these government pol- policies that are actually incentivizing the incursion of more fishers? Um, is it these market levers that are that are pulling more people into fisheries because of these opportunities or because there's constraints in other sectors. Um, So it's looking at these underlying drivers, I think, that are really critical to identifying policy solutions that actually work. So, Elaine, is this distinction between proximate causes versus underlying drivers, is that instilled in a kind of shared analytical framework that you all use at CI? Or if not, do you think that would be helpful? Um, I think I would say so. I mean, I, so this is, um, this is some thinking I did actually previous to my work at CI. Um, I wrote a paper on Malthusian overfishing, um, within this context, but at CI, I I definitely think, uh, that we do look beyond proximal drivers because 
you know, for example, this idea of social responsibility in fisheries, um, there's been a lot of headway made in environmental sustainability in fisheries. But I would say, like, in recent years, it's been pretty stagnant, and we haven't probably made the progress that we can. And I would argue it's because we've been ignoring the social issues, the social drivers, the fact that um, a lot of fishers are not treated fairly, um, or they don't have access to um, you know, the food that they need, or they're restricted from, from the livelihoods they need to support their families. So I think it's because we've ignored these social drivers that we haven't really made a lot of headway on environmental sustainability. And the fact that we're now sort of um, looking at fisheries more holistically as a social ecological, you know, system um, that needs a social ecological fix I think that we can make a lot more progress in terms of even driving environmental sustainability if we just factor humans into the equation too and their well-being. So yeah, I do think that we that we use this um, uh, this paradigm at CI in our work for sure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a you know a rather widespread view for organizations like CI? There, there are various ones out there um, to take that perspective. Yeah, I think there's. There's more and more. So there's a lot of environmental organizations, you know, and I think more and more uh, these environmental organizations are are becoming um, interested and taking on these these social issues that people have been too afraid to touch before. And I think it's because people realize the necessity um, and the importance of doing so. That said, there's still some some organizations that. are a little harder to convince to take on, you know, more of these, these social problems. Um, and that's, you know, often, it's often said that, you know, we, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the in-house expertise. It's not within our wheelhouse. Um, it's not really worth it to us. Um, and I think that's, that's, there's a lot of merit in that too. I mean, you can only take on what you're capable of taking on, but, um, I do think that more and more NGOs, environmental NGOs, are moving into the social space, and whether um, they do so by increasing their in-house capacity, by hiring more social scientists, or even partnering with NGOs, you know, for example, that that work in the human rights realm, um, I think that there is a movement towards embracing um, um, the ecological with the social at the same time. I had another question, which is: is this distinction between fundamental and applied research. I've seen this a lot and you see a lot of calls coming out. It seems like more and more that, you know, funders particularly are looking for applied research. And certainly I'd be interested in your perspective from CI. Um, To me, it's not so clear what necessarily applied research is. Um, You know, what is that boundary between research, which is fundamental versus research, which which is applied? It can be practically useful. And when you think about the work at CI, you know, what type of data, what type of research is really practically applicable when you think about the types of of findings that you you would need to be to act on, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, I I don't um, I don't disagree that we should still be doing fundamental scientific research. I think there, there's still merit in that, but it's hard for me to justify, um, you know, my own actions and decisions as a scientist if, if I'm not working on um, applied problems, just because there's there's so many things that we need to resolve 
Um, and I just, I find it so much more interesting to work on, um, you know, something that's tangible and practical and that needs a real world solution, um, imminently. Yeah. I mean, I would say at CI, most of the research that we do, especially within the global fisheries and aquaculture program, because we're inherently, you know, applied, um, in fisheries and aquaculture. I think that most of the work that we do is, um, is applied research, you know, so, um, that might be analyzing catch data or um, interviewing local fishing communities. Um, you know, uh, looking uh, looking for investment opportunities in conservation and tracking progress over time. So things like that um, are the things that we're involved in, and it's very much in the applied realm. Um, within the context of doing that applied work. Um what is the role of social ecological theory in that work? Like as you're uh, collecting the social and ecological data, are you, I mean, maybe you're not thinking about testing critical theories per se, but do you, do you still engage with um, ecological theory? I know that, you know, social psychology, behavioral economics have contributed to a strong behavioral turn in a lot of the policy oriented science. Now there's kind of conservation, social science, is that something you also engage in while doing this applied work? You know, I mean, I always think, <laughs> I always think about theory. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily sort of, you know, frame the work that I'm doing within the context of, of critical theory, because, you know, for a practitioner or for a local stakeholder, it really doesn't matter either way. But I know that I'm always thinking a little bit theoretically in the back of my brain, <laughs> Um, and at least framing my research to myself in, in that way. And I think one thing that I always come back to, um, and, and that's, this is not just in my research, but in the way I work with others, is the theory of collective action. Um, and so that really frames, you know, a lot of, of the work that I do, even at Conservation International. Um, and then, you know, in a related sense, uh, um, you know, Eleanor Ostrom's theories on um, her design principles and um, uh, theory related to social ecological systems. I, so I, I still very much think about that and use that. I just don't necessarily convey that to um, the, the folks that I'm working with. Yeah, one follow up I had on the on the applied research was for me, I kind of see that there's a natural problem orientation within applied research. And how does an organization like CI go about kind of prioritizing what problems to focus on. Um, you mentioned quite a few things, you know, from the spectrum of human rights to overfishing. Um, is, how does that process look like internally about, about prioritizing which problems to, to focus on? That's a really good question. And it's, it's actually quite difficult because um, in one sense, you know, we're liaising with all of our country programs and we need to make sure that the work that we're doing is relevant and useful to them and is what, they need and want or you know the support that they need and want to do their own work so we have to make sure that aligns with their needs and their interests and we also have to make sure it aligns with our global strategies um, and that our work can scale across the organization because that's really important for you know fundraising and and so on and so it's sort of a dynamic process that's both top down and bottom up and that's sort of how we pick the issues that that we work on and also beyond CI, we want it to be relevant to, um, you know, for example, the sustainable development goals and other 
um, very high level priorities that are set forth by our global community. So, um, yeah, I would say it's both bottom up and, and, and top down and sort of the role of, of where I work um, is to sort of merge those, those needs and those, um, those priorities. So Elaine, I can't help myself when you, when you talk about top, bottom up versus top down, um, you know, I think these terms form the basis for a, a mild intellectual obsession for a lot of us. Um, and there's also, I've been thinking a lot more via my participation in say our foreign study program in Southern Africa, really about the importance of being reflexive, um, you know, kind of through a kind of turning in of, of attention, you know, thinking about how do these concepts apply, not just to the groups that I study, but to the groups I participate in. Um, is that something, is that a process that you've, you've thought about and the importance of being reflexive? Cause we all, we all study these groups, you know, we, we study collective action problems, you know, Stefan and I have talked a bit about collective action problems among scientists. Um, was that, was the development of this, um, both combined bottom-up and top-down approach, which, you know, some people would kind of put under the rubric of co-management. Is that, did that kind of happen naturally or was it at least sometimes an explicit, explicit reference to, to again, theory that you might've learned? Well, so that, that's not my doing and I'm relatively new to CI. So, okay. um, yeah, but I, I, I do, <laughs> I do think about re reflexivity a lot and, um, you know, even before I came to CI in my own research, my PhD research, um, I became so accustomed to the framework in which you're supposed to do research, right? Which is you're at uni your university, you develop your research questions, your methodologies, you review the literature, you write a proposal that has to be vetted with your PhD committee and your advisor. And then you go to the field and you, you know, ask those questions that you're interested in. Um, and you try and get answers with, um, if you're a social scientist with the local stakeholders and, um, particularly with social science, this process really bugs me because, you know, you have your own sets of questions that are really interesting to you and that are vetted by your committee and that you get funded for. But what happens when you get to the field and you're engaging with local stakeholders, and even if it's folks with, that you've engaged with years before and you kind of have some idea or perception about what's important to them or what's necessary for them to sort of, you know, what do they need support in helping to figure out? Um, so even, even so a lot of times you get to the field and you realize, you know, they're really not worried about climate change today. It's actually this new, you know, government regime, or right. it's actually the fact that the, the market is tanking right now. And so your research questions all of a sudden become completely irrelevant. <laughs> right. That's when you become inward and you sort of check yourself. And for a while I was, I sort of um, had made up my mind that I never wanted to do research in the field again if I didn't actually develop my questions while I was in the field. But then in, in the same vein, it's, it's really hard then to get funding that way or to get questions vetted by your PhD committee, you know? So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard when you're approaching these issues as a social scientist and you want to do, you want to do it in a way that's sensitive to what's locally relevant at that specific time and what will help, you know, folks the most on the ground. Yeah. I mean, in, 
Yeah, it reminds me of the work I've done in the Dominican Republic. And I felt for a while that that work is, I mean, a lot of the, most of the value of that is essentially helping answer and fill local knowledge gaps as opposed to kind of moving some imagined, some imagined big theoretical needle. Right. Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, one response to this could be that um, within the NSF framework, you know, there are two main criteria that are supposed to cover these bases. One is intellectual merit and the other is like broader impacts. Um, I don't suppose you have an opinion about how well those um, manage to address this tension or do you, do you, do you even, or you, do you agree with my kind of implicit statement that um, each of those kind of map onto these two different values? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, of course, intellectual merit, it's, it's important for advancing our knowledge and science, mm -hmm. but it might not be important to what, what is actually locally relevant in a certain system. Um, right. Broader impact, almost the same. Like, you know, like you said, it might be important advancing some super huge theoretical needle, um, but is that really necessary for improving the situation on the ground in that location? Most times it's not. <laughs> so but there, there isn't, you know, there isn't space in an NSF grant to talk about, um, you know, local relevance or, or anything like that. So, yeah, that's an interesting point. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there could be potential to try to, you know, in, and there's a discourse about like how much these different attributes are weighed in the funding process. And maybe this is not something we want to, this is not a rabbit hole. We want to spend the rest of the interview going down. Um, yeah. I mean, I could see trying to push towards though, like maybe the idea that local impacts are a part of broader impacts, right? Like this, mm -hmm. we are making a difference and, and that really that this is just as important as, as the intellectual merit, even, I know some people who have worried that the broader impacts is, is not given as much uh, weight and I don't know enough to kind of really opine on it myself at the, at the current point, but Stefan, have you thought about the, I mean, yeah. in your own experience, have you thought about these issues? I was just thinking in some of the cases that I've worked on, particularly one in Indonesia where, you know, we, because we have a broader theoretical goal, like, as you said, to push a, a bigger theoretical needle forward, even if only in micro steps, uh, we often select case studies in places because they're interesting us interesting to us from that broader theoretical perspective, not necessarily because they're really grounded in the actual problems, like you said, that are in those communities. Um, but on the other hand, you, you often don't know that in advance, even if it's a community that you've been to in the past and you had a good understanding of what was happening there. Um, like you were saying, you know, the, the market of that year or the new political regime of that uh, just happened last month or last week might completely change it. So, I don't know how you how you solve that. That that's like a we have this need for planning our projects in advance, uh, partially for funding, partially for our own maybe sanity that we have comfort and that we can what we're going to do is is rigorous, for example, um, and well supported at least from an academic perspective. But you know what is that balance between adaptability and in, in the context and making it kind of more diagnostic, where you ask kind of series of more contextually re relevant questions as you go forward. It is interesting. It reminds me of the textbooks that I read in grad school about case studies and case selection. And you, I don't remember ever ha having a, a criterion being kind of practical relevance, right? It was all kind of about how do you actually use case studies to generate theory? 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you are you picking a random subset? Are you picking the extremes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then how would you justify that? Uh, like going to a funder afterwards to say that you know we we adjusted our whole project once we got there and we we changed the goals and is is that ethical as well like to the funding agents and from the science perspective? So Elena, with some of the time we have left, I'd love to switch to a topic that I talked to you a fair amount about the last time I saw you, um, which is about games. Um, kind of end on a high note. So I, the last interview um, that I did for this podcast w- was with uh, Juan Camilo Cardenas down at the Commons Conference in Lima. So we talked a lot about games and, and their role in science, et cetera. He's one of my heroes. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. I mean, he's just a lot of fun to talk to about many things. Um, and one of the themes that came up was kind of the use of games, uh, not just to um, generate scientific knowledge, but as interventions in, in, in themselves to try to change behavior. Um, I would just be interested in hearing about your thoughts about maybe methods generally, um, but the relationship between kind of some of the more traditional methods that a lot of us have used surveys, you know, collecting lots of data at the household or individual level, running some regressions or whatever we do with those versus um, maybe what you call more participatory methods, games, et cetera, what, how that process of moving from one to the other worked for you and maybe whether or not you're interested or are doing stuff like that at CI. Yeah. So prior to, you know, my, my experience with Juan Camilo designing um, uh, economic experiments uh, in the field in Mexico, I had, I had mostly done in terms of social science research, I had done surveys, interviews and focus groups, um, which they, they have a lot of value to them, but they're also, really difficult for me. I don't know what it is about approaching someone and asking to take not just their their time, right? There's an opportunity cost to every interview and survey you do with another person. So you're asking to take their time, but also also their knowledge and um, whether or not they, they ever get anything back from it. And you never really know. And so I don't know. I just always had a really hard time with, with the survey and interview style of research. And then I, I also would get really bad survey fatigue. I don't know if you, your 135th, you know, survey asking the same question. You just, you know, you'd rather not. (laughs) Hard to get super excited about number one through five. Yeah. So when this opportunity came up to use this whole different style of research on game theory or behavioral economic experiments, I got super excited. Um, and so, you know, for folks that don't know, basically game theory or economic experiments allows you to test assumptions about human behavior and decisions in a really controlled environment. Um, and increasingly so, people are, are using um, game theory not just in labs and classrooms, but in the field with real stakeholders. So that, that's what I did. You know, it was really fun. We were, we played a series of common pool resource games with fishers um, in Mexico, and we were asking the question, how does harvesting or fishing behavior change as the resource gets increasingly uncertain? uncertain? The availability of the resource gets increasingly uncertain. So if you add uncertainty, you know, to um, 
to a hypothetical uh, stock of, we, we, we play the game with a hypothetical stock of abalone. If the availability of those abalone were increasingly uncertain, would fishers fish more or less? You know, would they be incentivized to fish more because the weight of tomorrow is, is insufficient? Or would right. they decide to refrain from, from fishing in order to sort of counteract those, those forces of change and uncertainty? Turns out they did the latter, which was really cool and surprising. Um, and I just, I had a really fun time doing experiments uh, with fishers. They were actually compensated um, for playing the game. So every abalone that they decided to harvest during the game, they got real compensation for. And so I know they had a lot of fun doing it as well. Um, and I think it just provides a really useful tool to look at how human behavior changes, right, in a controlled setting um, in response to these different treatments. And I think when you couple game, uh, game theory with surveys, so we did exit surveys for everyone that played our games, you get at the how human behavior changes um, in response to certain treatments, and you also can get at why if you combine them with, with answers or responses to surveys. So that was, that was a really cool um, experience for me. And then in terms of your, your first question about the role of, of game theory um, and more of like a strategic and, and learning um, sense, there's been a lot of um, speculation about whether or not doing these um, behavioral economic experiments in the field with real stakeholders provides more of a pedagogical role and that it allows uh, these stakeholders or participants to reflect on decisions they're making on a daily basis, but really reflect on them in a strategic environment and not just individually, but with one another. So for example, at the end of the games that we played with the fishers, we would have a group discussion where everyone would reflect on the decisions they made and why it was really cool to watch them, uh, reflect, but also question each other, you know, push each other and then collectively as a group decide on, you know, what was right or what was wrong and, you know, what they would do in the future. And, um, I, I, I definitely think that there, there, there is a, a role in doing these behavioral economic experiments beyond that, just to, beyond just research, mm. um, but in, in providing a strategic learning environment for the participants and the researchers. I mean, it kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier, right? That there's these different values that sometimes are seen as being competing. Like, do we try to generate fundamental knowledge or do we try to practically engage with the world? And it sounds like maybe we're kind of able to have our cake and eat it too if we do this well. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And is this something you're interested in continuing to try to do? Oh, yeah. I'm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have all these ideas in my head of, of you know, what I want to do next with um, behavioral economic experiments. Um, I just need to find the funding. <laughs> sure. Okay. But, yeah. I had a question following up on that. Do, do any of those discussions that you have with the, the fishers afterwards, do you talk to them about the, the practical changes which would happen in the fishery and how they might make those same type of decisions or not uh, in a real fishing situation with speculation that there might be change in the fishery going forward, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the conversation wasn't necessarily talking about potential future change in the fishery, but change that they had experienced in the past. Um, and actually, this is one of the factors that we looked at. And so 
the more the more that fishers had to deal with change and uncertainty in the past in their real lives, the more conservative their behavior was in the game, which was super interesting. Um, because they had they already had undergone some sort of social learning in the past right. based on their experience experiences with resource change and decline that informed the way that they played the game. Um, so that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it was really interesting. So there was a lot of discussion around, you know, how the game really emulated the real life situations that they face and that they have faced, and that that they decided to make decisions in the game based on what they saw worked in the past in real life. There was, there was a lot of connections being made between uh, the behaviors in the game and then also real life decisions, which was interesting. Very cool. One other thing I was interested in uh, before we wrap up was, you know, some looking forward or maybe an example of the projects that you're working on now or any any ex- field experiments that you would like to do or are currently doing just to give maybe some more specific examples of what you're doing at CI at the moment. So unfortunately we're not, I'm not really doing any field experiments right now at CI and um, our work right now is basically um, in all of the geographies that we have marine programs uh, with the fisheries component, we're um, trying to basically drive both social and ecological improvements in those fisheries. So starting with baseline assessments and then based on what those assessments um, are highlighting, you know, high risk areas or, or needs for improvement or desires by local stakeholders, um, then we design improvement plans to try and, um, you know, forge po- positive change in those geographies. So it's very practical. Um not a lot of sort of theoretical research at all. Um, so that's sort of what we're doing at CI. But uh, one research um, endeavor that we're that we're sort of looking forward to in the future, um, and that we're trying to get funding for right now, is really on a very high level on a global scale, looking at the links between poor environment, poor environmental practice, and um, uh, you know areas with you know social um, social abuses or human rights abuses. So where and how are these two processes linked and what are drivers of these processes and how can we address them? You know, thinking about these, um, underlying drivers, not just the proximal drivers, but the underlying or distal drivers of these problems. So how can we address these social issues that are linked to environmental issues? And can we, you know, if we are addressing, uh, basically a social need or a social high risk area can that also drive improvements for the environment at the same time and vice versa. So we're really interested in the linkages between um, the environmental and the social when it comes to fisheries. So that's something that we're looking forward to in the future. Yeah. No, no games planned right now. For now. For now. Yeah. Well, really, the last one, Elena, is just if there's, um, you know, anything else that you'd want to make sure that the listeners uh, of this episode hear, if there's a, a paper coming out, et cetera, or something that we haven't talked about, um, you know, a website that you'd like to point folks to to learn more about your work, Twitter handle, all this lovely stuff. Yeah, if, if um, people are really interested in social responsibility and fisheries, um, a partner NGO of ours. Uh, Fishwise have put out a, a brand new website called Rise. I believe it's riseseafood.org. Okay. Um, 
but I can double check. But basically, it's um, it's a platform for stakeholders to. Uh, it's basically it holds guidance for businesses and other stakeholders who are wanting to address social responsibility issues in fisheries. It's super informative. It has basically the the collective body of work up there from every single NGO that's working on this. Wow. Um, so a lot of the work CI has done is up on their work Fishwise has done, you know, fair trade, um, all sorts of folks. Um, and it's all in this one, this one website. So I would recommend that people check out if, if they're interested in social responsibility and fisheries. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Elena. Yeah. Thanks for making this work. Um, yeah, maybe we'll try to interview your colleague Jack Kittinger next if he's willing to kind of get on the phone with us. Yeah, that'd be great. Cover the whole CI team. He's the just his brainchild. You know, he's he's been the the leader of the social responsibility movement in many ways. So, if you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod. Or you can visit our website, www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you will find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.